So last night, Howie laid out for us the course of practice, the curriculum, you might say, the kind of teaching that the Buddha gave on the dilemma and, and how to find our way, each of us, in our own very particular journey Each of us will experience the journey with all the uniqueness and particularity of our own lives. So, if you are feeling challenged by hearing about the Four Noble Truths, you're not alone. It's quite an undertaking to open ourselves to the reality that in this life there is suffering, huge amounts of suffering, externally, internally, body, mind, heart. So tonight I want to talk about compassion because compassion is one of the teachings the Buddha offered as the response to suffering. How else can we respond? So I'll begin with this. A wise woman was asked, what is the way to respond to suffering and discontent in our lives? She answered, there are those who will meet pain and discontent as they would an enemy. Some will rage at the world. They will find someone to blame, thinking only in terms of fault. There are those who will bewail their fate, saying, what have I done to deserve this? Why does sorrow always happen to me? There are those who will blame themselves, saying, it's because I'm such a worthless person. It's no wonder I suffer. There are also those who will meet pain and discontent not as an enemy, but as a teacher. In the face of suffering, they will follow the path of the wise, asking what lies at the roots of this discontent and what is the means to its end. As you have seen, mindfulness practice works by allowing what is to be present, not resisting what is here, not trying to control what is happening. Of course, we do that, but over time, we more and more understand what's required is just simply opening to what is present. And perhaps you've noticed here on retreat that when you get up in the morning, you have no idea what kinds of experiences you're going to have. You come into the hall. Maybe you feel really great. You come into the hall, you sit down on your cushion, and you're visited by some kind of unexplainable happiness. It descends, and there it is. Or perhaps the opposite. Sometimes we come in, we're feeling great. We sit down and we're met with some kind of inexplicable 
suffering from who knows where, perhaps from our past, from ha- perhaps from fears about the future. Your experiences come unbidden, don't they? They arrive. You didn't order them up. You didn't say, today I will have my unexplainable happiness day. (laughs) Today I will have my enlightenment day. Today I will have the insight. I promised I came here to practice insight, meditation. No, it doesn't work like that. What arises is largely out of our control. Anything can happen at any time. We never know. Moment to moment, we don't know what's going to come next. Where we do have some choice is in how we meet whatever it is that arises. How we meet our experience. That's where we have some influence. That's where we have some choice. So when something difficult, what Howard referred to last night as suffering as that which is difficult to bear, pains in the body, torments of the mind, that which is difficult to bear, can we not be a victim, overwhelmed, fearful, angry, Instead of the reaction which adds to the difficulty, the second arrow, so to speak, which Howie spoke about, our task is to meet the difficult, to bear, to meet the difficult to bear with courage. It does take courage, with commitment, with kindness, with our full and open attention. I mentioned the other night this poem, The Guest House by Rumi, but I didn't read it. I thought tonight it might be useful to hear again, or for some of you that may be the first time. He says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, be grateful for whoever comes, whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. We would say, as the path of practice itself. Each thing that arises is your teacher come to teach you, perhaps an amazing, important lesson about your life. There's a woman who is an uh, author and Zen, uh, Buddhist practitioner for many years. Her name is Sandy Boucher. And she writes about... Uh, her response to the news of her diagnosis of cancer. When I received the news of cancer, I understood, oh yes, what is required of me now is that I be fully present to each new experience as it comes and that I engage with it as completely as I can. 
I don't mean that I said this to myself, nothing so conscious as that. I mean that my whole being turned and looked and moved toward the experience. I like that because it speaks of her years of practice, of her years of training herself to turn towards the difficult, to turn towards her experience, not to run away, not to feel overwhelmed, not to feel victimized, but to say, I can be with this, or I think I can be with this. Let me try at least. Let me see. It speaks to the capacity which we are cultivating here, this capacity to meet whatever arises, whatever kinds of suffering, whatever kinds of difficulty. We all have our own version of that. Trungpa Rinpoche called it being a warrior. He said the key to warriorship is not being afraid of who you are. Ultimately, that is the definition of bravery, not being afraid of who you are in the moment, not being afraid of our anger, our grief, our fear, our love, our longing, our vulnerability, our joy, our power, our love, not being afraid to get to know it, to welcome it, to meet it. And in that way, we develop this capacity. This is what we are learning. It begins with being present, and that is what we have Uh, been doing these last days, learning to be present. Do you sense how much more present you are now than the first day? It's palpable. And this presence that we speak of is an embodied presence. Right now I'd like to invite you to put one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly, your hara. And I'd like you just to sense and feel the aliveness of your being through these centers, the heart center and the belly center. These are both centers of intuitive knowing inside of us. Some people describe the practice as the movement from the head down into the heart, down into the belly we discover there is this intelligence at work in these centers and they awaken as we practice. We know things through the heart, through the belly. They're also accessed and strengthened through the practice of of Hatha Yoga, through the practices of Qigong and Tai Chi. That's why we like to include them on retreats. These strengthen our capacity to be present. They strengthen our energetic presence here in the world. Breath and body present. And they help us to stay present when life gets challenging. So this is one aspect of the capacity we are developing, a very important one, this quality of presence, this quality of energetic aliveness. We're not just showing up from the neck up, we're, we're fully engaged. 
So another aspect of this capacity to meet life is inherent, inherent in mindfulness itself, in the non-judging and intimate quality of mindfulness. Non-judging attention. Intimate in that it connects us to our experience. We could say attention, the attention, mindfulness, it doesn't have a motive. It's not, I'll be mindful so I will get something. It's not like, we could say a thief is mindful, but with a motive. We're not practicing that. We're practicing mindfulness without a motive. The only motive be is to be connected to our experience, to the truth of our present experience. And that's a kind of love. When we are when we see a newborn baby and you know who doesn't like to give attention to a newborn baby or a baby that's happy and wanting you to smile so it can laugh, you know, I mean it's just so easy to feel the love that comes from attention, both ways. The baby's looking at you, you're looking at... There's this love that's present without a motive other than just to be there. Easier to do when with easy things like babies and flowers and cute dogs. And <laughs> a little harder to do with you know somebody who's grieving or somebody yelling at you or your child having a cranky time. But that is the same capacity, this kind of intimacy and love. So the sixth Zen patriarch has something to say about this out of something called the Platform Sutra. He said, good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are alike. It may not always feel that way, but it is important to understand the potential that awareness in in itself, when there's no judgment, when there's no poisoning of it, has this quality of intimacy and kindness and allows us to build this capacity to stay present when things are difficult. Another way that the Buddha taught uh, us beings to strengthen our capacity to meet all parts of ourselves was through something, a teaching called the, the Brahma Viharas. And some of you I know know these, some of you probably have not heard of them. They are four sublime qualities of love that we can cultivate in our hearts and minds. 
They are uh, the quality of metta or loving kindness, the quality of karuna or compassion, the quality of mudita or joy, and the quality of upekka or equanimity. You may notice our dorms (laughs) that we teach through our residences. So the quality of loving kindness is cultivating that capacity to love just as a function of the heart, to love unconditionally. The quality of love that compassion speaks to is love in response to suffering. How does love look when suffering is present? It looks like compassion. It looks like a caring that is not controlling or manipulative, but just simply the openness of the heart that is willing to be present with suffering. Mudita is the quality of love in response to delight and beauty and celebration and all the the good things, the goodness of life. That kind of love is celebratory, joy. And the quality of love that equanimity represents is the quality of love that is wise, that sees that love is not enough at times to change what is difficult or to uh, make things better, that there is this uncontrollable um, nature of reality that we, as much as we wish things to go well for somebody, it may not come to pass no matter how much we care. So it's sort of that wise but tough love that says, I care and I understand that it is not in my control to make it all better, equanimity. So these four different kinds of love um, are taught and there are practices for each of these qualities that we can develop over time. And we offer a retreat, several retreats every year called Metta Retreats in which these qualities of the heart are um, practiced. And um, we have an opportunity to see in our own experience how they are experienced. And the, the net result is that we, they are strengthening to our heart, our mind. They broaden our repertoire of possible responses to the world. So karuna or compassion is the response of the heart in the face of suffering. I said the other night that um, I mentioned this rather striking experience I had um, before I had done any Buddhist practice uh, in the presence of a Tibetan Lama who was speaking about compassion. And as he spoke, I felt this force field of compassion just sort of light up the room and had a very powerful effect on me. I I knew compassion as a living reality. 
This happened during a year when I was um, doing an internship uh, for my doctoral degree in clinical psychology, and my internship was split between juvenile hall and suicide prevention. It was quite an intense year. I was learning a lot, but I was also really struggling with feeling quite inadequate dealing with the, with the intensity of suffering that I was coming in contact with on a daily basis. And I wanted to be really a good you know, clinician and everything, but I felt somehow that the tools that psychology were offering me didn't really have what was needed. That that there was a sense of helplessness and a sense of as good as the tools and techniques were, they did not really address the, the heart of the matter, which was that there are these people who are suffering very deeply and and my own response to that suffering was um, to feel helpless and to feel overwhelmed a lot, to feel burnt out, to feel like how I just didn't know what to do. So I think because of that feeling in myself, I was open to hearing about compassion. You know, maybe before I'd had those experiences, I wouldn't have been as open to hear about compassion. But that opened me to understand that something else is needed in life called compassion. At that time, with this, with the Lama that I studied with, I was also introduced to the view which is taught in Buddhism that all beings are equally deserving of our love and care that all beings are equally deserving of our love and care. And it is our sacred moral duty to learn how to do that, to learn to love all beings. That's a pretty tall order. And there are practices for cultivating this capacity to love, not only the people we like, but to love people, people that, we don't know, people that we don't like, people that are difficult, people that are uh, of other cultures, races, creeds, people that do things we don't approve of, all kinds of people, the vulnerable, the ill, the sick, the, the insane, that somehow is the human heart big enough to hold all beings in, with love? That is a big question. It's a question sort of on our planet right now. Can we include all beings in our care if we are going to be able to live together on this planet? It's an open question, but there is the intention in the Buddhist teachings to do just that. Another teacher that I bumped into um, around this time was a Zen teacher named Maizumi Roshi. He was at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And I would go there and sit sometimes, and I was um, completely confounded by the 
formality of the Zen rituals, the bowing and the chanting in Japanese and the... It was very, it was kind of a beautiful aesthetic experience, but I didn't have a clue what it was about or what the goal was or anything like that. Inscrutable instructions. The only instruction I remember was that somebody once in a while would shout into the zendo, die on the pillow, die on the pillow. And I would think, oh God, yeah, I know this is important. I got to die on the pillow, but I had no idea. I got very constipated trying to die on the pillow. That was about it. But the thing that I most um, benefited from was Maizumi Roshi himself. We would have interviews with him every now and then on retreat, and I remember going into uh, this interview, and I didn't know the protocol, what you're supposed to do, you know, koans and all that, so I would just tell him my problems. (laughs) I would go in and say something about I was having a hard time in my relationship, and what I was so struck by was how present he was and how completely, oh yes, I know that too, and he would start weeping, you know, and he would say, oh yes, my wife and I, we have such problems, and he'd be weeping, and I was like, oh my goodness, but it felt very clean, it felt very much like he was meeting, it was heart to heart, he was meeting my sadness, I was meeting his, and it was beautiful, it was a beautiful experience that said to me, well, there's a lot more to this Zen ritual than, than is obvious, you know, that this man could be so kind and so loving and so immediate in his response to my suffering. So this quality of compassion takes our practice down below the neck into the realm of relationships. A poem by Hafiz called Becoming Human. Once a man came to me and spoke for hours about his great visions of God. He asked me for confirmation, saying, Are these wondrous dreams true? I replied, How many goats do you have? He looked surprised and said, I am speaking of sublime visions, and you ask about goats? And I spoke again, saying, Yes, brother, how many do you have? Well, Hafiz, I have 62. And how many wives? Again, he looked surprised, and then he said, Four. How many rose bushes in your garden? How many children? Are your parents still alive? Do you feed the birds in winter? And to all he answered. Then I said, You asked me if I thought your visions were true. I would say that they were if they make you become more human, more kind to every creature and plant that you know. Another little story along these lines. This is a Sufi story about a certain dervish who was very respected for his wisdom and virtue. Whenever anyone asked him how he had become so wise, he always answered, I know what is in the Koran. 
One day he had just given this reply to someone in a coffee house when an imbecile asked, well, what is in the Quran? In the Quran, said the dervish, there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah. <laughs> This quality of love and compassion enters our lives in many different ways. It may come from keeping a keepsake album of our lives, of our friends and loved ones. It may come from noticing the exquisite beauty of this earth, and we have been partaking of that in these last days. And yet also noticing, and how can we not, how the Earth's resources are being exploited, damaged, perhaps lost forever. We were speaking at tea about the oil which continues to flow into the Gulf of Mexico, not having been successfully stopped. It's so sorrowful. Compassion may come from our exposure to other cultures, indigenous peoples, peoples in the third world who do not have a voice about the political or corporate decisions which are affecting them and their families and communities. Compassion may come from witnessing the brutal violence inflicted by one people on another and knowing the utter futility. Hatred never ceases by hatred, the Buddha said over and over. Compassion may enter our lives from becoming sensitive to the undercurrents in our own society of racism, homophobia, classism, sexism. Compassion may enter our lives through Anicca Dukkha, what Howie spoke about uh, last night. Sudden change that stops us in our tracks. A sudden illness, a trauma, an accident, a death. We may suddenly find ourselves in a story that we hadn't anticipated. We thought we were in a story about being a mother and then our child is taken from us in a tragic accident. We thought we were in a story about being an, an athlete and then we are left paralyzed by a freak accident. We thought we were about to realize a lifelong dream and it all falls apart through failure or betrayal, and our illusions are shattered. This is how it can happen. Change can be sudden, swift, irrevocable. Now in the face of this, it's quite easy to become very angry, bitter, preoccupied, feeling like a victim. The other possibility is that it can open our hearts to the universal nature of suffering, to know that when we suffer, 
we are not alone. We have this funny thing, I see it a lot in teaching students that when we suffer, we somehow get the idea, I'm the only one. But actually, it's almost the opposite. It is what most joins us with others because everyone has some source of suffering. Sharon Salzberg says, being able to acknowledge suffering, open to it, and respond to it with tenderness of heart allows us to join with all beings and realize we are never alone. There was a uh, king at the time of the Buddha who was a very powerful king, King Ashoka. He loved to do battle. He loved to win. So he, the story goes that he uh, would would engage in battle, and in this one battle, after the, it was all over and his enemy had been vanquished, he was walking through the battlefield, looking at all the blood and gore and bodies and everything. And suddenly, it struck him that what he had done was horrible. It struck him that he had wreaked havoc And at just that moment, a follower of the Buddha was also walking through the battlefield, and he looked very peaceful. And Ashoka was startled to see a person looking so serene in the midst of all this carnage. So he went up to the monk and asked him, you know, who was his teacher? And he was sent to the Buddha, and he went to the Buddha and he, you know, had this big turnaround of his, uh, in his heart and said he, he wanted to uh, practice, practice with the Buddha. The Buddha took him as his student and King Ashoka then became a, a peacemaker. Instead of being a warrior, he became a peacemaker. So these events happen in our lives. The heart awakens. The heart awakens. Another way in which compassion enters our lives is by practicing it. And so we offer, as I said before, um, practices which help to strengthen the heart and help to cultivate compassion as a so that we become familiar with it. We know what it is and what it is not. The classic definition of compassion is the trembling of the heart in the face of suffering. Each, well, compassion, we could say at times, can have what is called a near enemy, which is that something that may look like compassion but is actually not the real thing. So the near enemy of compassion is pity, where we have this attitude of pity towards someone. Well, I feel for you, too bad, you know, too bad it's too bad for you. I'm, I'm doing okay over here, too bad for you. It's that kind of, there's a slight or 
or perhaps not slight sense of superiority, you know, so there's this quality of pity. The far enemy of compassion, of course, is cruelty. Compassion, it is said, is strengthened by qualities of equanimity, of having that sense of balance, of seeing the world clearly with wisdom. The Buddha said, and this is the piece of wisdom that would help, uh, help with compassion. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only. One thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. Not good and bad, what's right and wrong, but suffering and the end of suffering. That was his primary concern when people came to him for teachings, was to help, was to see where are they suffering and how might I help them bring this suffering to an end. So compassion is like this. You cut your left hand. The right hand, what does it do? Does it stand over here saying, oh, too bad for you. <laughs> You're on your own over there. That was a stupid thing you did. I'm not, I don't want anything to do with it. No, your right hand goes right there. No question. Compassion is like that. Suffering, you want to help. You respond as best you can. There are, in the brain now, we've found out through neuroscience, something called mirror neurons, which are designed exactly to evoke empathy in the face of suffering, that we mirror something in our brain says, this person needs help, this person is suffering, and we move, we act, we go towards. But this is something we need to practice. So we practice by, uh, we practice compassion by thinking the first person that we practice with is someone who is suffering a lot. So we can think of someone who is suffering. That in, begins to uh, awaken this quality of compassion in ourselves. Many of us, and we've certainly encourage this on retreat and will continue to encourage this, many of us most need to learn how to be compassionate with ourselves. But strangely enough, that may be a harder person to send compassion to. You may be the difficult person in your life. (laughs) It's often the case. We can send compassion to everybody but this one. So we start learning how to do this by where it's easy to send compassion. Someone you love who's suffering. And we might say, may you be free of your pain and sorrow. May you be free of your pain and sorrow as a wish, as a response of the heart. Or simply, I care about your suffering. I care about your suffering. The Dalai Lama said, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would give it far more attention than we do. Changes in attitude never come easily. 
the development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly. It is not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. A lot of our Vipassana mindfulness practice is based on the metaphor of a garden. We could say the heart is a garden and we are the gardeners. We sow seeds and provide the right conditions of nurturing. With our loving attention, the qualities of consciousness which we wish to encourage, that we wish to learn about and know. And compassion is one of these qualities. So we start where it's easiest, and we start by planting small seeds of intention the intention to acknowledge suffering, to open to it and learn to be with it with care and tenderness, to be loving and patient even when there is nothing that one can do to make it better. A lot of times we think we're being compassionate, but really we're just wanting to get to make it go away. The real test is can we hang out and let it be at what it is without that quality of aversion. I was struck early on in my practice by Thich Nhat Hanh when he first came to this country. And here's a man who'd gone through enormous suffering in his own country of Vietnam. He was a monk during the war and he uh, was a peacemaker and he identified himself as a peacemaker. He would not participate in the war and he would not take sides. He would not take one side or the other. And so they were both mad at him because he would not join their cause. So he had seen a lot of suffering. And what he would say to us Westerners when we would go for teachings is, don't hide from suffering. Go make sure you see suffering. Make sure you hear it, you touch it, you, you know that it is happening all around you. And I was so struck by that. I mean, it was so kind of against what we usually say in our, you know, culture about, you know, we, we'd prefer to do something more entertaining or more inspiring, but to go and you know, our culture hides suffering. We put old people away in the homes and we don't see dead bodies and, you know, we're terrified of illness and we just see the stupid drug commercials on television. (laughs) You know, we we really do. If you go to a, you know, if you go to a third world country, India perhaps, or, you know, suffering is much more in the streets It's in the streets. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. It's not sanitized like it is here. But it is, he was right. He's absolutely right. We need to uh, not hide ourselves from the fact of it. 
Thoreau said, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed and I am prepared to expect wonders. And that's very much like this practice. This practice doesn't give, I was going to say, it doesn't give sudden miracles. Sometimes it does. I wouldn't want to close that door. Sometimes it does. But most of the time, it's more like watering the garden. It's more like providing the seeds of mindfulness, of kindness, of compassion, planting the seeds, tending the garden, giving our best effort to taking good care of the seeds inside of us, not knowing what conditions our lives are going to uh, give us, where we might find ourselves needing to go in our lives. But as long as we keep that intention to follow the, the, the thread, if you will, of kindness and clarity, we will not ever uh, be lost. So I'd like to close with um, something written by uh, Billy Mills. How many of you know who Billy Mills was? Anybody here know who Billy Mills was? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah? The ad guy? No, I don't think so. Billy Mills was the first Native American Olympic gold medal winner back in the 60s. I think for running? Was it for running, I think? Track. But... Uh, racism being what it is, he was not allowed to be photographed. They, they, didn't pick, they didn't show his photograph with the gold medal. So he had a challenging life, but this is what he wrote. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. Let's sit together.
So we have about 40 minutes for walking before our last sitting of the day. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.